This morning, we find ourselves um, in what, is, what must be the single most known and loved verse in all of the scriptures. John chapter 3, verse 16. Now, before we get into this, I would like to point out a couple of things. First and foremost, I would argue that every single one of you, perhaps not all, but the vast majority, have had some experience and encounter with this particular verse. Perhaps you recall your grandparents or your parents giving you this verse as a young child. Perhaps if you grew up in the church and you participated in Bible drills, they would have had you memorize this verse. I remember being very, very little in vacation Bible school and their sole intent was to make sure that I had John 3.16 memorized. Why? Because in it, there is an incredible statement that confesses the love of God for the world. We all come to this verse with various backgrounds in it. And frankly, we all come to this verse with not only some type of nostalgia, but also we come to it with the eyes to see that this is, in some degree, an encapsulation of the gospel. Now let me also tell you that the passage we come to today is not only one of the most beloved verses in all of Scripture, it is also one of the most contested. And let me explain, we're going to deal with this, but it is a verse that people have debated over for thousands of years. And so as we come this morning, I would ask you if you would... This morning, my plea is that we might throw aside for just a brief moment our background information in the verse. The reason I'm asking you to do that this morning is not because I'm going to teach something contrary to what the Scripture teaches. Instead, I would like to give you the full view that we might look at it and celebrate its truth. And so, there's one more thing I'd like to add in regard to this. You may have noticed and perhaps considered it odd that I stopped at verse 15 last week when it clearly leads in to verse 16. The reason I do that is because I am convinced, now I'm going to say something here and I need you to understand, I am not at all by any means contesting the authority of Scripture. But I am convinced that John chapter 3 verse 16 through 21 were not words that Jesus spoke. Instead, it is a commentary from John. Now let me tell you why that's important and let me tell you why it encourages the authority of the scriptures. Regardless whether these words came from the mouth of Jesus or they were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God for John to write, its authority does not change. There has been birth over the last hundred years the idea of what we call a red letter Christian. In the year 1900, 1899 is when it began. A group of men thought that it would be a great idea to take the scriptures and put in red all the words that they were convinced were spoken by Jesus. And their intent was good. They wanted to highlight the main character of the scriptures. And I rejoice in that. I believe wholeheartedly that the the entirety of scripture is concerning the Son. However, we, in light of that, begin to stop considering and looking into the Scripture. We simply take someone else's word for it. Now, let me make the argument for my case real quickly. First and foremost, in this verses 16 through 21, we see if this was Jesus referring to God as Hathaos, not my Father. That's a rarity. It's incredibly odd for him to do that. Secondly, it would be the only time, the only time that Jesus himself referred to him as the monogenes, the unique one of God, the only begotten son. John, however, is the only one who uses this throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Now, before we go any further, I would like to make the argument that everything I said does not matter at all. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why I'd make that argument. 
Because red letter Christian is, is an absolute ridiculous statement. We either believe that the authority of God's word is based in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or we don't believe it at all. If you're convinced that we're only to be Christians who read the words of Jesus and since he said them, they must be, have some unique authority. My friends, if you don't believe in the inspiration of scripture, you can't believe that, they, that his words were accurately recorded. We bow to all of the scriptures. Every single inspired word, regardless of who spoke them or who authored them. And so as we come this morning, I bring that to your attention, not because I want you to question the authenticity of John 3.16. Instead, I'd like to strengthen it even a little bit, because what we have here is clear doctrinal statements left to us by the Apostle John, I am convinced. He's looking back on the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, and in light of that, he is displaying a theological truth. This is an incredible thing. Now, the Holy Spirit of God would give insight to John that he could look at the conversation as a whole and then begin to break it apart in a way that his readers, those who he is trying to communicate, that if you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, and you truly believe in him, you may have life in his name. John's whole intent is writing is to bring people to faith, which means this passage, the intent of it is to see men come to saving faith in Christ. And so this morning, if you would, stand for the reading of God's holy word. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word, humbled before it as we so often are, Lord, that it is authoritative, that it is powerful, that it is able to bring people to repentance and faith. I am reminded of the copious amounts of scripture that points, that self-authenticates, that the scripture is its own authority. And Lord, it can, it, 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 teaches us that through the preaching of the word, through the study of the scriptures, we may be made wise unto salvation. It is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, Lord. It never returns void. It always accomplishes its purpose, Lord. The list goes on and on. It is a, it is a sword that splits bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And so, Lord, we come this morning bowing under its authority, trusting that you have a purpose for it. And so, Lord, we ask you in your great might, illuminate our hearts this morning. It is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Um, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, we like to give a spoiler to some degree on what the sermon is about. We like to give you what we call a sermon in a sentence. And the sermon in a sentence is this. So everything that we're going to talk about is essentially leading us to this uh, statement. And you'll find that this statement has a lot in common with John 3.16. The love of God sent the Son of God so those who believe in him will have eternal life. You read it again. The love of God sent the Son of God so those who believe in him will have eternal life. 
Now, you'll notice there's perhaps a little bit of interesting language there, but like the first, the first phrase there, the love of God. I'm not saying that the love of God is something different than God. I'm saying that the motivation for the sending of the Son is, his, is the Father's love. Now, as we get into this verse, I mentioned earlier that in this verse is perhaps the single most contested verse in all of Scripture, meaning that people long to diversify and change the meaning of the text. And so let me go ahead and give you that phrase. For God so loved the world. This phrase is the single most hotly contested phrase in all of Scripture. I mean, you look at, I had, I had so I'm a book nerd, by the way, and I have commentaries just all over my office, and I flip from each to each, and what you'll discover is that in, this, in these commentaries, people have various different opinions, and to be real honest, most of them have pretty strong evidences for their opinion. So what are we to believe in regard to what this statement means? For God so loved the world. And so for the sake of clarity, I'd like to give you four views on what this statement means. I will tell you mine at the end. But nonetheless, I'd like to point out a couple of statements. First and foremost, the first statement that people would, would argue is it is all people without exception. Now, let me tell you what this means because this is what the universalist would use to, to determine that every individual will be saved based upon the fact that God loves each and every individual equally. So the universalist argues if God so loved the world, meaning each and every soul, his intention is to save each and every one of them, then by the sacrificial work of Christ, he will bring that to fruition and every individual soul will be saved. The reason this does not work is because in verse 18, it says there will be people who will be condemned. And so this statement falls away. This one is the only one that I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't. Um, and so the, the second one is it is people without distinction. Now, every individual would say yes and amen to this. Essentially, what it means is that when Jesus, or when Nicodemus, I mean, when John makes this statement, he is saying Gentile, Jew, man, woman, black, white. It matters not. And to each and every, I mean, every commentary essentially agrees. And why shouldn't we? We see very clearly that God is inclusive in the gospel offer to each and every ethnos or ethnicity. That's why the Great Commission encourages us to go to every, to see every tribe, tongue, and nation come to faith in Christ. There is no distinction in the gospel offer based on ethnicity. There's no distinction in the gospel offer, period. And so when we look at this verse, while this could certainly be one understanding, I'm not convinced that it's even making reference to that. Thirdly, it is the world refers to the elect only. Now, if you are uncomfortable with the word elect, you could exchange it for those who believe. Regardless, it means the exact same thing that God has a, only a love for the elect, for only a certain group of people. To this I say, though there is grains of truth to it, that is not the meaning of this text at all. Instead, what we find, is there a unique love that God has for his church? Yes. Friends, and if you would like to disregard that, I would encourage you, examine your own lives and the way that you love people. Consider this men in particular. Each and every man has a mother who he loves dearly, I would assume. A sister, perhaps, or other women in his life. But friends, do you love them like you love your bride? No. There is a distinction. There's a great, great love that Christ has for his church. That does not disregard the statement that the, he loves the whole world. It instead means that there is a personal, intimate love that he has with the church. And for us to look at this and say, by all means, this cannot be the case. Um, friends, we, we rob ourselves of the beauties of the gospel. That he would look at ruined sinners, draw him to himself, and bring them to saving faith. That he might have them as his bride. It is a complete disregard of the vast majority of the scriptures. And so, as a general rule, I do not actually believe that this is what this statement is referring to here, by the way. 
I'm convinced that the last statement is perhaps the most accurate. It is in measure of the quality of God's love. The quality of God's love. Notice the language here. For God so loved the world. Now, there is many arguments like I previously mentioned, but I would argue that based upon this text, it is not attempting to measure even the vastness of God's love. It's not talking about the fact that he can love each and every individual person distinctly because he certainly can. It is instead the fact that he is the measure of God's love to whom he loves. Have you considered this for just a moment? For God so loves the world. Can we talk about real quickly what is in the world and who is in or what is in those who occupy the world? Previously, we discussed that the man apart from the saving work of Christ is dead in their trespasses and sins, that they are wicked altogether, God-haters, people who not only refuse to come to faith in Christ, but aren't even aiming to seek it. They're not not God-seekers. There's no such thing. And yet, it's these people that are objects of God's affection, that he would love them to such a degree that he would send his only begotten son. And that leads us into our first point. What is the measure of God's love? And in John three sixteen, we have this very clearly indicated. The measure of God's love is the sending of his son. Now, I would remind you that from eternity past, the Father, Son, and Spirit have been dwelling in perfect unity. The only begotten had lived eternally with the Father and the Spirit since the foundation, before the foundation of the world in eternity past, they dwelt together in perfect harmony, co-equal, co-powerful, co-eternal. To send, to send the monogenes, the object of heaven's worship, to dwell amongst an unclean people, people who have rebelled against him since Genesis 3, is the evidence of God's great affection for the world. I mean, consider for a moment, and though it be cliche, no parent would do this. The only means that a parent would do this, should his love be so vast for the objects in that place that he would send his only begotten son to rescue and redeem them. Friends, we know nothing of this love. I dare say that it is not even palatable to us. It cannot be fathomed. You cannot plumb its depth. That's the reason that the song sings, no pen or tongue can ever tell the love of God. Friends, if you ever begin to question your 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 value your intrinsic worth would you please understand for just a moment whether you be in Christ here right now or not there is a great love that God has for you that he would send the light of the world to reveal the light of the gospel to each and every soul and that leads us into the next part of this he gives light to all when we looked at Genesis when we looked at John chapter 1 um, there is this really interesting verse, and we spoke of it really quickly, but um, we, we spent a whole lot of time in John 1 because it's so rich. But nonetheless, verse 4 says this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. If you go down to um, verse 9, it says this, The true light, which gives light to, what's the word there? Everyone. He gives light to everyone. The fact that Jesus came is an expression of his love for the world. It is. He gives light to each and every individual soul that that when Jesus came, it did something across the board. That his light was revolutionary. It affected people. To this day, as the light shines in the darkness, there are two, two, um, two responses to that light. It is either, praise the Lord, light has come, I can see. Or it's, get that away from me. 
And we see this very clearly as John begins to continue his discourse here. As John is considering the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, he brings this up. We'll look at that in a brief moment. So I would like to clarify also in verse 16 what the word believe means. It is so fundamental to saving faith for us to understand what believe actually means. So we're going to go back a little bit in history and determine what faith means. There are three Three forms of faith. The very first being notitia, to believe data. To believe data. When someone presents to you something and it's clearly evidenced, you can believe it. You can believe it to be true. For instance, we uh, have church on AstroTurf. You don't have to convince me of that. It's data. It's right there. There's no, I, you don't have to argue with me about it. It's very clearly here. Data. Things that are true. We agree with the data. And there are many, by the way, who believe in the data of the Christian faith. They believe not only in the data, but they believe in the moral grounds. They want to see people live more Christian lives because ultimately it's good for society, by the way, which it is. But to believe the data is not salvific. There are thousands upon thousands, I dare say millions of people who have been presented the Christian gospel. They believe it's data. They believe it to be true. And friends, it's evidence. You can see this in various um, people's lives. For instance, C.S. Lewis and Lee Strobel began to go on a journey to disprove the tenets of the Christian faith. And all they found was, man, these things are true. Now, the interesting thing about Lee Strobel is he was convinced that these things were true, but was not prepared to put saving faith in Christ. You can have the data, believe it to be true, and not have saving faith. It's very important that we make that distinction. Secondly, these two things are pretty, closely, uh, pretty close together, but a census is intellectually persuaded. I, I not only believe these things, I'm convinced of them. They, they impact the way that I live to some degree. I, I like the moral tenets. I clearly believe that men can be raised from the dead, but there is a last one, and this is saving faith. It's a fiducia, trust in Christ alone. It is the idea of exclusion of all other objects of faith. He alone is my rock, my solid ground. This is is what it means to believe. It does not mean that you agree with the, the, the resurrection. You can agree with the resurrection all day long. It's very clearly evidenced not only from the scriptures, but also from outside sources. But when we look at this, when we say it's to trust in Christ alone, this is the exclusion of all other means of salvation. It says my righteousness is filthy rags. It says my own ability to keep myself alive. I don't even do that. It's a gift from God. He gives me my breath. And so when we look at this passage and we say, and for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the measure of his love, that whoever believes in him should not perish. My friends, if you, have, if you believe the data, if you're intellectually persuaded, it does not mean that you are in Christ. It's the frustration that I have with these weak gospels that go around, forgive me. It's looking at Jesus and saying, you're everything. You're my all. Everything else can fade away. I have no desire for it. It's filthiness. All the things that I worked out in my life, they're trash. Burn them. Because Christ is everything. That's saving faith. And I would plea with you real quickly because I know that some of you in here are persuaded of the data. You believe it intellectually. But if you do not look to Jesus as your all in all, as everything that is able to save the greatest object of your affection, then friends, you do not have saving faith and you will perish. You will. But that is not the intent of this passage. The intent is not to look at you and say you're condemned. Instead, the intent is to say there is hope. 
There is a remedy for this. The exact same way that in John, in John 3, 15, when Jesus is making the point that the serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There is means of remedy and rescue. And so what is that means of rescue? The summation of John three sixteen is this. God's end for those in the world who believe is eternal life. Listen to that. God's end for those in the world who believe is eternal life. Friends, and I would argue real quickly, he will have his end. Now, what we find in this passage is also two camps. This is where it begins to kind of break apart here because the original statement is, for God so loves the world. He's making it abundantly clear that throughout the entire uh, creation, he has a love for the world. Yet there is distinctions within that world. Do not be persuaded with the universalist that would argue since God loves all equally and exactly the same that there are not distinctions because, sweet friends, there are distinctions. And they are very clearly displayed here. First of all, there are two camps. Now, here's the beauty of both camps. Both experience the light. John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. It's come He gives light to everyone. If we're going to take this verse and apply consistent hermeneutics across the... Hermeneutics is how we study the Bible, by the way, sorry. Um, And apply consistent hermeneutics throughout the entirety of the scriptures. John is making reference to the light. He's already spoken of the light. It's come into the world. It is the life that that Jesus brought with him. And it's actually giving light to everyone. And yet what you have is two distinct camps that perceive the light. They have some reaction to it. So... Let's consider those. First and foremost, it is the believing in the world. Notice chapter 3, verse 17 through 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. As a brief explanation, because I, I need to clarify for this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Friends, sending Christ was not necessary for condemnation. Men were dead in their trespasses and sins already. I want you to consider for just a moment the intent of the Father sending the Son was to redeem those who would believe. Those who stand condemned, who have rejected him, they needed no Christ to come for they were going to reject him at every turn. They were going to die in their sin. And so when the intention of the Father is motivated by love for the world, that those who would believe would come to saving faith, that was extra. So um, the believing in the world, verse 17 again, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Notice verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. What beauty is that? Whoever believes in Christ is not condemned. He's looking at, he's considering the whole conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus and he says, I want you to understand when Jesus said flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit, he is making reference to this new birth, to genuine faith. Because if you go all the way back up to verse two, when Jesus is being believed in by many men who see his signs and wonders, they do not have saving faith. He does not entrust himself to them. But true belief, faith in Christ alone is salvific. So the believing in the world is one camp. The second camp is the unbelieving in the world. Listen to verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you would, for just a brief moment, maybe I can jump back up to the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Would you consider for a moment those who were snake bit? Those who had been bitten by the fiery serpents, those who have the venom coursing through their veins that would slowly lead them to death. Should there not be means of rescue, they are condemned already. God has pronounced judgment. And friends, God has pronounced judgment. Would you consider for a moment that 
Judgment has been clearly made since Genesis chapter 3. The curse came. Not only did the curse come, but he demonstrates the repercussions of sin is the slaughter of something. By his grace, he slaughters an animal instead of Adam and Eve. And he clothes them with the skins of those animals. But judgment has been made. The wages of sin is death. This is not up for negotiation. And so what we have here is the unbelieving world, those who were in the camp of Israel, consider this, it is making reference to those who have salvation provided for them should they look to the serpent and be saved. But alas, they're comfortable on their beds dying slowly. It's absolutely foolish. But nonetheless, let's consider the unbeliever, shall we? The unbeliever in verse, um, in verse 16. What I kind of want to do is, by the way, work backwards through this because I think it kind of gives us a trajectory. So if you'll notice in verse 20, it says this, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. I'm sorry, in verse 19 as well. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Friends, I'm just going to tell you, every single one of us fall into this camp. If you consider for just a moment that you have some righteousness to bring to God, I would encourage you to read the book of Isaiah. It would inform you that your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. They are not worthy to be brought before the Lord. Can you imagine walking into the high court of heaven, bringing filthy rags before the king? If it were any other kingdom, you would immediately think to yourself, that's a terrible idea because the king doesn't want that before. He's going to kill me for that. Why we don't apply that to the high king of heaven astounds me. You're going to go before him. You're going to say, look at my deeds. Look at my deeds. You're condemning yourself. Look at what I've done. I've done all these things. You can even consider the passage, that horrifying passage where these men come before. Haven't I cast out demons in your name? Haven't I worked miracles and signs and wonders in your name? And Jesus says, away with you, you evildoer. I never knew you. Can you consider, I mean, the, the folly of bringing these things before God and saying, look what I've done, look what I've done. And he said, and for what you have done, your wages is death. Their works were evil. What this led to in their lives is they hated the light. They could not stand its appearance. They hated it. And friends, this is where I'm going to continue to tell you, you're still in this camp until the Lord does a great work in your life. We our works are evil, and because our works are evil, please get the light away from us. We don't want that exposed on us because it clearly shows us our wickedness. And so what then does that mean? They rejected the Son. Look at verse 18 again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why are they condemned? Because they haven't believed in the only remedy. The only remedy for sin is found in verse 18 because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The distinction here, by the way, in the unbeliever and the believer, it starts here. It doesn't start before all of our works were evil. Absolutely every one of us hated the light. But if the difference is belief. And this is the distinction that we find in John 3, 16 through 21. The distinction is belief. It is faith. And so for those who believe in Christ, there's actual remedy. But for those who reject the Son, there is no other means of salvation. Hear me when I say this. There is no other, ne there is no other name under heaven by which men might be saved. None, zero, zip, do not dare contend that there is. It is in Christ alone that salvation, provides, salvation comes. And I would encourage you also to consider that your own name is often the one that you put forth. Look what I did. Look what I did. You're just as those. Friends, we all do these things. Even the redeemed from time to time consider their works and have hope and glory in them. And there's no glory to be had. It's all glory to God, as we'll see in a brief moment. So they rejected the Son. What then does this lead to? It leads to what we find in chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. The judgment across the entire world is death. 
You've sinned, you've fallen short of the glory of God. The judgment for these things is death, for I am holy and righteous, and I will not allow sin to enter into the holy kingdom of heaven. The condemnation over every individual is death. Now, but the beauty is that's not the intent of the passage. Again, the intent of the passage is actually pointing to the fact that there is a remedy for sin. But friends, we must understand the diagnosis and the prognosis before we can understand the cure. And the beauty is that there is indeed a cure. John 3.16 points to this. So the very first thing I'd like to point out going, working backward again is, is uh, chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to this. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, I want to pay very close attention to that last phrase. His works have been carried out in God. God. The phraseology here is to say that all of the works that these individuals have done were inspired and brought about by the work of the Spirit of God. It is perfectly in line with what we find in Genesis 3 where the conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus is taking place. Flesh gives birth to flesh. It bears fruit, which is death, but the Spirit gives spiritual birth, and by that spiritual birth, true and good works can be done. What a joy that we can do what is true should the Holy Spirit act in our life. All of our works are carried out in God. So it continues on in verse three, in chapter three, verse 21, but whoever does what is true. Friends, I'm gonna go ahead and say this. There is action should the Spirit give life. I'm making a distinction here and I'd like to, for some reason or to some degree, play with the order salutis real quick. The order of salutis is the order of salvation, meaning that the Holy Spirit of God gives life and by his grace, we can do what is true. Remember who we are apart from him. Should the Spirit give life, we will do what is true. Not only will we do what is true, we will gladly come to the light. Gladly come. It is, it is the means by which the light is glorious, and it is our great joy. We feel its warmth and its effect in our lives. We're able to see, we're able to enjoy the good things of heaven because God, through his Spirit, has given life to dead men, those who deserve to perish and nothing more. It is an, and I would pause here, to refer back to the love of God. Why? Why give life? The condemnation is just. God, by the way, would have continued being the perfect loving God had he not saved. He was not under obligation. No one of his attributes command him. He gives grace based upon his free choice. He gives love based upon his free choice. The only thing that had to be done is judgment. And justice must be done. And yet what we have is the freedom of God's grace and his enduring love to look at ruined sinners and bring them into his family. And so when we look all the way back up to verse 16, we see for God so loved the world and what joy it is that he would bring us to a place where we can come to enjoy the light that which once burned us now instead embraces us. And so he comes to the light. He comes to the light because he has been born again. Notice chapter, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 in this conversation that John is expounding upon. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And this leads us to some degree to explain what eternal life is. Eternal life is enjoying the Godhead perfectly throughout all of eternity. It is life eternal. It is something so unique that it is something only God is capable of giving. That when we have faith, when we enter into that saving relationship with Christ, when we've been born again, then that which we had no access to, now we have free access to. 
We are called to embrace it and enjoy it. We have been born again. Next, they have believed in the Son of God because of this new birth, because they can see the kingdom of God, they can see the King of heaven. And so because they can see the King of heaven, they see him in all of his glory and all of his splendor to some degree like Isaiah would have seen him high and lifted up. I do believe in Isaiah chapter 6, by the way, that he is seeing Christ. That when we look at this, What a joy it is that we can look to him, see him in all of his splendor and radiance and look to him and say, yes, Lord, how good are you? Radiant are you? I trust in you alone for only you are able to save to the uttermost. Now, the last part is this. They actually inherit eternal life. I would point you back to the beginning statement that God's intention, God's end for the world that believes in him will have eternal life. This is not an if, this is not a possibility, this is an actuality. Oh, how we should cling to this truth. And I would argue that the saints very rarely do cling to this truth. We believe in some life to come, but we do not understand that it is a true and better life. Secondly, it is a true life that starts here below, not something we're waiting for. John 10, 10, we have life and life to the fullest. When does true life begin? Life as according to John 17, uh, what is eternal life? Knowing Christ. Friends, eternal life for the saints starts below. Death is the issue here. We don't believe it accordingly to the way these people thought. Death is separation from something. The idea of a physical death is separation body from soul. The idea of a spiritual death is separation soul from God. And my sweet friends, if you be in Christ, there is nothing that will separate you for all eternity. Nothing has the authority or the power to do that. He is the sovereign, omnipotent God. There is nothing, nothing that can remove you from that great love. He has purchased you. He has bought you at a price. And since you have believed in him, since you have had saving faith where you look at him and say, you are my all, rest comfortably. The beauty of the rest of God is that it is based upon the work of God. We consider perhaps for a moment that as Joshua would enter into Canaan, they were, it was considered to enter into his rest, as the uh, writer of Hebrews would say, yet that rest was met with war and labor. My friends, the rest of Israel is not like the rest of the saint. The rest of the saint enters into the high court of heaven because of the work of another. There's no labor for us to do. Instead, should we bring our labor, we nullify the rest. But the beauty is that saving faith is based upon and centered around the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone. John 3.16 is rich, it's glorious, but it is also exclusive. People would argue the inclusivity of John 3.16. Friends, perhaps there is no verse that is more exclusive than John 3.16. For God so loved the world, yes, that he gave his only begotten son, see the measure, that whosoever believes, I would like to clarify here the language, it is For the believing ones in the Greek. For the believing ones. It is not the idea of talking about who can believe. It is the argument that those who do believe actually will attain saving faith. They will find in Christ a perfect Savior. One who is actually able to save to the uttermost. And so my friends, I would encourage you as we really do bring to a close this whole passage starting really in John chapter 2 verse 23. I would like to some degree walk you through this because I am convinced that John has just theologically laid out one of the most brilliant arguments in the entirety of scripture. He looks at men, it's Jesus looks at man in verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to him. See the nature of man. 
He will not entrust himself to those who have a man, man-made faith. He looks at Nicodemus as Nicodemus comes and he says, Truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I see you, Nicodemus, working for your righteousness. I see you giving birth to flesh from your fleshly labor. The only means of rescue is should the Spirit of God give life to you. And the only reason the Spirit of God giving life to you is efficient and effective is because the Son of Man has been lifted up. And since the Son of Man has been lifted up, then we can look very clearly and see the love of God displayed. This is the major argument. John is saying, behold the love of God. The root, the source, the foundation of everything salvific that happens in this world is rooted in the love of God. This is crucial for us to understand, especially for the saint, because far too often the saint is convinced that God loves you because Jesus died for you. No, Jesus died for you because God loves you. It's crucial for us to understand this. We do not walk around hoping and praying that God would love us because of the work of Christ. God loved us so Christ came and laid his life down in our stead. And this is where I will make the distinction. That sacrifice was made for those who believe. And we can look there and we can see the love of God clearly displayed. The light came into the world that all might see. But for us who believe, we actually have a perfect Savior that came from the enduring, unpurchased, unmerited love of God. Do you see the source It flows from one thing and one thing alone. The grace of God is rooted in the love of God. And to borrow from, um, I forget his name, that when you understand that the grace of God is rooted in the love of God, it sets you free. You're not to come and bring your labor and your wages. Instead, you are to look to the love of God and say, there is my hope and stay. There is my rest. My plea for you this morning as we close. For those of you in here who do not know Christ, perhaps you intellectually agree, perhaps you believe the data, but should you not trust in him with saving faith, that he is your all, that he is your only means of rescue and redemption, then you do not have saving faith. Examine yourselves. Saints, examine yourselves. And should you be in Christ this morning, what great love. What great love that he would send his only begotten son that he might rescue and redeem that which was lost. And friends, if you have been found in him, you will be kept in him. The beauty of this is, as we, continue, as we consider the entirety of the book of John in John 10, it makes reference that those whom he has rescued out of the world, no one will pluck them from his hand. You rest comfortably in the love of God. He has given his son that you might be rescued and redeemed and in him you can have perfect rest.